yeah, we're going to be talking about divorce and uh, remarriage. And, you know, the, the sad reality is that divorce is common. And sadly, it's, it's far too common. Um, I'm sure everyone here has a direct connection with someone who has been divorced. In my previous life, um, before I was a pastor, I was a wedding videographer, um, like Josh Park, this pound, this pound. Um, and um, I remember shooting a, a, a wedding for a couple. And then I, I edited the project and I was ready to send it to them, the final product, about a year later. My, my turnaround was kind of slow. Um, <laughs> So it was about a year. And, and then <laughs> I, uh, I tried contacting the bride, no response. And then, and then I tried contacting the, the husband and no response. And so finally, um, after searching around on social media, I discovered they were already divorced. It was, it was uh, less than a year. And I don't, I don't know exactly what happened because I was never able to contact them. Um, but they were both professing believers. Um, they were both active members in their campus ministries. They were leaders even in their churches. And yet in less than a year, they had divorced. Um, so, you know, unfortunately it's, uh, it's far too common and, um, you know, I, I even know pastors, uh, several pastors, in fact, who, who have been divorced. And th this is the, the sad and far too common reality. And so uh, this, this isn't a topic of just a theoretical abstraction, right? Um, just like last time we said, if you think adultery can happen to you, then you better watch out. And it's the same thing. If you think divorce can't happen to you, then, then you better watch out. Um, now, um, I, I do think that if you meditate and apply the passages that we've discussed up to this point, um, especially understanding the meaning and the beauty of the marriage covenant, and how it's a reflection of, of Christ's love for the church so that you prioritize your love for Christ, um, then, then out of that overflow, you'll be able to love one another. And, and then you will be able to safeguard your marriage from decomposing and deteriorating to the point of divorce. And so um, I think, I think uh, we have discussed enough scripture up to this point to avoid divorce and that that's really where our focus needs to be you know just by pursuing christ honoring marriages um and that's the best way like if you focus on that you you really don't even have to know um what we're going to talk about today but the sad reality though is that we we live in a broken world and divorce happens or at some point you may be tempted uh, to divorce and you know somehow your marriage could deteriorate to the point where you start asking should i 
get a divorce. And so that's, uh, that's what we're talking about today. I wish we didn't have to, but uh, this is the reality. And therefore, uh, we need to talk about it. And um, the other reason this is important is as a, as a church, uh, we need to understand this for the purpose of church discipline. Uh, when, when this uh, needs to um, take place, and then just also for, for pastoral counseling. Um, and, uh, and so um, today we're going to, and just even helping one another through these issues. And so uh, today we're going we're gonna to cover um, passages relating to divorce. We're going to first look at 1 Corinthians 7. And we've seen so much there with regard to marriage, right? And then, and then we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 19. Um, but uh, before we do that, I just want to ask a, a very important question, um, which, is, which is this. Is, is divorce and remarriage the unpardonable sin? Because uh, in, in some circles, it's kind of treated like that. You know, if you've ever read the Scarlet Letter, um, you know, when you were in, you're in school, um, in that book, adulterers were required to wear a Scarlet A on their chest as a mark of shame that they were adulterers. And, and today, in some circles, um, people wear an invisible scarlet D for divorce, where there's this unspoken, although sometimes it's, it's spoken, it, it's, a, it's a barrier, though, that's raised. And these people are, are snubbed into a category as failures and sinners. Um, is that how we're supposed to treat those who are divorced? We, we mark them for life with the letter D. Um, we don't want to treat divorce lightly, as we'll see. And, and for, for that matter, we don't want to treat any sin lightly. But this is the gospel that we believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the righteous... The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so God does not treat sin lightly, right? Sin separates us from the presence of God, from, from the kingdom of God. However, there is also forgiveness for sin. And so verse 11 continues, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this, this is the, the wonderful and amazing grace that comes to all through Jesus Christ and by the, the Spirit of our God, our sins can be washed, even adultery, even divorce. We can be sanctified, that is, we can be made holy and justified, that is, declared righteous. Not because we are, but because Jesus is, and he covers us with his blood, right? And so, is divorce the unforgivable sin? No, it is not. There's only one. We find it in Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, 
and whatever blasphemies they utter, this is verse 28, uh, who, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What is this sin? It is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That is to resist the convicting work of the Holy Spirit so that you are unrepentant of sin and you, you fail to give that sin by trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone. That's the only unforgivable sin. It's to reject Christ, to pretend as if you can take care of your sin on your own or you're, if you're not even a sinner. But 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and even though we continue to sin, though we don't want to, if we confess, he forgives, right? And so as the song goes, our, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more, right? Praise, praise the Lord for his grace. And so uh, divorce is sin, although we'll get into some exceptions um, today but it is not the unpardonable sin. It's, it's as serious as all other sin. Its wages are death, Romans 6.23. But this, the seriousness of sin, it testifies to the power of the blood of Jesus. Right? Jesus' blood is more powerful than all of our sin. And so um, I think that's, that's very important to establish in the beginning here. There is forgiveness. There is healing through the gospel for divorce and and this is where the uh the elders as well as the uh the members of the church need to help those who are going through the pain of divorce to to find forgiveness and, and to find healing and so um having said that 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 certainly does not make divorce permissible um and, or does it allow us to treat it lightly or, or casually? Um, and therefore, we need to understand what, what God says about divorce. And, um, and we're actually talking about two different things here. We're talking about divorce and remarriage after divorce. And so we'll get into that. So first of all, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll be right back real quick. Okay, so we've already seen uh, and spent a good amount of time in this chapter. Um, we, we've seen it has a lot to say about marriage and, and about singleness. And if you recall, the, the chapter, it's really Paul's response to a letter the Corinthians wrote him, uh, asking about a teaching popular at the time. And so in verse 1, you see, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so that teaching, it brought out all sorts of issues and questions uh, related uh, not only to sex, but, but to marriage in general. And so throughout the chapter, Paul, he, he addresses different categories related to marriage. And in verse 10, we discover he, he now addresses those who are married. So he says, to the married. In verse 12, he speaks to the rest 
who are the rest. If you read uh, in context, it's believers who are married to non-believers. Not that that's okay to do. He'll make that clear at the end of verse 39, that they are to only marry in the Lord. However, this, the rest, concerns situations when a person is already married, and then they become believers. However, the spouse does not. That's the rest. And so we have these two categories of married folks in uh, verses 10 to 16. Let's deal with the, the married believers first. And so verses uh, 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, so what, what is this verse telling us? First of all, Paul's saying, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Interesting statement. We, we've kind of already... Uh, seen this before, but it, it's one of many he will make. In verse 12, he'll say, I, not the Lord. Here he says, not, not I, but the Lord. And this, this indicates that here he, he's probably referring to a uh, teaching of Jesus, a saying of Jesus that was um, uh, preserved most likely in the Gospels, which uh, we'll, we'll look at in our next session. Um, and so, uh, what he, he's indicating is he, what he's saying is based on what Jesus taught uh, about marriage and divorce already. And so what did the Lord teach? He continues, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, we need to stop and ask here, what does the word separate mean? Um, from our modern perspective, separation is different from divorce, right? That's how most people kind of think of it. Separation is where a married couple takes a break from each other and they separate physically, but not legally. So is that what Paul means here? Um, the word separate is a, it's a literal translation. It, it can also, though, it can mean divide. The NASB translates it as leave. So is that just a physical divide? A physical separation or is it a legal one? That's what we need to ask. What is intended here? And to find the answer, uh, we can just look in the context. And so if you keep reading verse 11, it says, but if she does, in the Greek, the word separate is actually there again. So it's actually, but if she does separate, um, she should remain unmarried. Now, what is the literal translation of remain unmarried? It is remain unmarried. That's the literal translation. Now, why does that matter? Remain unmarried. That implies she already is unmarried. Right? You see that? And so what do we call someone who is unmarried, although they were previously married? They had been divorced. Okay, so, so this word for separate in verse 10, then it is just another word for divorce. Okay, so then going back to verse 10, we can say then the wife should not separate from her husband, that is divorce her husband. And likewise, at the end of verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. And there the word divorce is the clear word 
for divorce uh, in the Greek. And so uh, Paul, he's simply saying, don't divorce guys, right? Don't, don't divorce. This is from the Lord. However, if they are already divorced, then what? Verse 11, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So you should not divorce, but if for some reason it's already happened, then don't seek remarriage or better yet, and better yet, try to reconcile that marriage. And so, yes, what he's saying is even after divorce, try to restore the marriage again. Now, Paul, he doesn't explain why here, but he's leaning on Jesus' teaching, which we'll get to. Um, but why should a couple try to reconcile their marriage even after they've divorced one another? And the reason is because in God's eyes, the marriage was actually never broken. And so this means divorce in God's eyes is not the same as divorce in man's eyes. Now, again, we'll, we'll see this in, in more fullness when we get to the Lord's teaching on this. Um, so let's just continue for now. Uh, so coming to verse 12, Paul is, he's now addressing believers who find themselves married to non-believers. And so in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I, not the Lord. Now, Paul is saying the Lord, he didn't teach specifically on this um, this, uh, this, uh, this situation where there's a mixed marriage between a believer and non-believer. But Paul, as an apostle of Christ, who has the authority of Christ, is able to teach on this matter. And so what he says is that if any brother that's a believer has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So someone comes to the faith and husbands are, are wondering what to do with their, their wife who doesn't want to convert uh, to faith in Christ, what, what should they do? Paul is saying, if she's okay, then don't divorce. And likewise, in verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So uh, same thing for believing wives with non-believing husbands. Um, don't divorce. If they're okay, then don't divorce. And then Paul, he gives his rationale in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Um, what Paul is doing here, I think, is he's probably reversing the mentality that believers might have, which is this. Well, if I stay married to this man or woman, they're going to discourage me and maybe even defile me spiritually. They will be a negative influence on my relationship with Christ. That's probably what they're thinking. And so Paul, he flips it. Instead of thinking how the believer will be affected, the believer should rather think about the effect that they can have, the positive effect they can have on the, the non-believing spouse and their children. And such is the way of love, right? It, it always thinks of, of others. You, you might be the only person in their life 
that can bring the hope of Christ to them. And, you know, it, it's so wonderful to, to hear stories of, of um, Christian women, you know, who, who they're the only Christian in their entire family. And somehow through their faithfulness and prayers, right, the, the Lord uses them to bring even the whole family to the Lord. Right? That, that's what Paul is saying. Stay married because you will be a sanctifying influence on their life. Otherwise, if you left, then they would be unclean Gentiles without the sanctifying influence of a godly mother or father uh, or husband or wife. So um, in verse 15, though, so that 14 is talking about the believers, but in, in 15... Now he's talking about the non-believers. If the non-believer separates, if the non-believer wants to divorce, then what does Paul say? He says, well, let it be so. Now, is that a contradiction? Is, earlier Paul said, don't divorce. Now he's saying, let it be so. Well, why is there a different standard here? Uh, I, I think this is the same logic that he uses in 1 Corinthians 5.12. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, he says, what, uh, <laughs> what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, right? So essentially what he's saying there is there is a different standard for believers and non-believers. What have I to do with judging outsiders? That's non-believers. In other words, you can't control them. Why? Because they have rejected the authority of Christ and his church. And so, that, you know, that's, that stuff is nonsense to them. And so you can't use Christ's words to speak to them. They haven't placed themselves under that authority. And so you should try to be a, a good spouse and to bring your non-believing spouse to the Lord. But if the non-believer wants a divorce, you can't stop them. And then verse 15 continues, in such cases, the, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, enslaved, it's a strong word. Uh, and that's actually, it's a literal translation. Uh, it's dulao. It's related to the word dulas, if you know, which means slave. But the idea here is that uh, it's a bondage that is being bound to the marriage vow bound to the covenant of marriage. And so Paul is saying that if the non-believer wants a divorce because they don't respect marriage as a covenant before God, they don't, in other words, they don't respect God, then you can't bind them to that. And you yourself are not bound either. So let them go. Now, the following verse is very important, however. Verse 15 continues. God has called you to peace. What does that mean? It would be natural if, if your husband or your wife divorced you and you didn't want it, it would be natural for you to be angry at them, right? To be resentful, to be, to be bitter. That would be natural. But as the believer as the, the sanctifying influence on this non-believer's life, God wants you to embody, to give the peace 
that God himself gives to you, right? And so um, the peace that, that God made with you, even when you were his enemy, Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, the, and th this is in the same context as the famous verse, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that we were, we were still sinners, right? Christ died for us. That's how God made peace with us. And so that, that's the idea here, right? Even the sinner, God wants you to love them and to try to make peace with them by bringing his peace with them. And so while you may be tempted to be bitter that this husband or wife is divorcing you, don't be. Rather, remember the peace God has given you through Christ Jesus and try to give that to them as well. So, so don't fight them. If they want a divorce, right? Rather, uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is what you do. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So important, right? If you find yourself ever in that situation or someone you know, if they're a believer, Philippians 4, 6, 7, right? Just find your peace beyond understanding in the Lord. Um, I think this verse in um, 1 Corinthians 7, it, it's very much in alignment with 1 Peter 3. Same situation, right? You have a, a, a believer with a not married to a non-believer. And, and, uh, and there, you know, the, the Apostle Peter, he talks about the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, right? That is what is able to win their non-believing spouse to Christ. They're at peace, right? That gentle and quiet spirit. And so, um, so it, it seems to be in the context of conversion here, uh, saving the spouse. And so verse 16 continues, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, this verse, it can be translated two ways, either positively or negatively, right? It can be interpreted negatively as it's saying, don't hold and fight them thinking you can save your husband. That's one way, negatively. So it's saying, who are you to think you can save your husband? That's the negative. But it can also be interpreted positively, which is saying, who knows? <laughs> You might be able to save your husband. Who knows? Um, it can go either way. But uh, in the context, I think, given, given that Paul has just spoken of, of peace and how believers are a sanctifying influence on their non-believing spouses, I think it's the positive. And so Paul, he, he's saying, look, what's more important than the divorce? It's the salvation of your spouse. And so just because they're divorcing you, God might be able to save them yet. 
through you. Through the, the peaceful and loving demeanor with which you treat them. And so I think that's, that's the radical attitude that a Christian should have, right? Their marriage with Christ comes first. And so if they are married to Christ, then they know all human marriages are momentary anyway. Therefore, the ultimate priority in this situation is not their marriage. Rather, it's the spiritual condition of their spouse. That's powerful. Even for, even for couples who are both believers, right? The, the priority is not your marriage, but the spiritual condition of your spouse. And that, that implies, that assumes your own spiritual condition as well, right? Your marriage is not your priority. It's your spiritual condition with Christ. Now, um, Paul doesn't say anything about remarriage here in this situation, but he will mention remarriage at the end of chapter 7. And so if you, if you look at verse 39, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. What is this verse telling us? It's telling us marriage is for a lifetime, right? That's, that's the marriage vow, right? We say, till death do us part. That's the vow for marriage. And so a wife is bound to her husband. She is under the bond of marriage as long as he lives and vice versa, as long as she lives, right? However, if he dies, then she is free to be married to whomever she wants, only in the Lord, that is to another believer. Paul, he, he says something similar to this in Romans chapter 7. And so 1 Corinthians 7, now Romans 7. So just think of the sevens. And uh, just looking at three verses here, Romans 7, 1, it says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person, so that we're binding, only as long as he lives. And then verse two, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And so death releases a person from the bond of marriage. And then verse three adds a little application. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so you see, here, Paul, he, he's giving the principle for remarriage here. You can remarry when your spouse dies. However, if you remarry while they're still alive, what is that? He says it's adultery. And that... Uh, will lead us to our next passage, but, uh, and we'll see that in our next session. But so far, what have we seen? Basically, what we've seen is for believers, they should not divorce. However, for some reason, if they do divorce, they should remain unmarried. And even better yet, they should try to reconcile 
the marriage, right? And we see if you add that with Romans 7, you see why they're to remain unmarried. Because if they marry someone else, then that's the same as adultery. For believers married to non-believers, the believer should not divorce. However, if the non-believer divorces, you can't stop them. But instead, still love them and try to save them. And presumably, Paul doesn't say this, but we can, uh, we can get it from the previous uh, case. If, if you can reconcile with your non-believing spouse, and, and even better, they become believers, and, and then you reconcile, right? Then, then try to restore the marriage as well. But finally, if your spouse dies, then you are free to remarry. Okay, so um, that's, uh, that's what uh, the Lord teaches us in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, a lot of this is really rooted in what the Lord teaches us. And so we'll get there in our next session um, and bring out some meat there. But uh, let's take a break at this point. And actually, let's... Um, Let's, let's break out into uh, breakout groups for five minutes and just uh, kind of just unpack this. Uh, we'll meet again in five minutes, but in your groups, uh, just discuss what we've seen so far here and address any questions you might have. If you really have to take a bathroom break, go ahead and do so. Um, but let's, uh, let's go and, and do our breakouts for five minutes and then we'll come back. Okay, so see you then. Uh, you guys will have more time uh, afterwards to, to keep the conversation going. Um, but let's, uh, let's dig in now to uh, Matthew chapter 19. And, um, you know, Jesus, he, he actually, he teaches on the subject in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke. Um, but we find the most extensive teaching in Matthew. If you look at the, the final page in your handout, you can see um, the four different passages where Jesus, he addresses the topic of divorce um, or remarriage. And so you can kind of see them next to each other, see how they compare. Um, but we're going to focus on Matthew 19. But if you notice, there are slight differences. And so I'll, I'll try to bring out just some of those. Um, but, you know, what, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, I, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's probably referring to these passages. And so uh, let's see what the Lord teaches, starting in Matthew chapter 19. Um, and so let's read from verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife um, for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And we'll just stop there uh, for today. Um, God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's, uh, let's pray together uh, before we approach this passage. Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart, give us your mind, Lord, when it comes to marriage and even the, the topic of divorce. Oh, Lord, would you, uh, would you um, really just help us not only to understand, but that we would truly be one with you in the way that we uh, think about and approach this topic, Lord. And so, uh, would you teach us uh, in this time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, let's begin by looking at verse 3. And uh, we, we see here that it's a trap. Uh, he's being tested by the Pharisees. And this is kind of like a few chapters later in Matthew 22. Uh, when they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, Matthew twenty two eighteen. Uh, it says, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites, right? And so you see um, that we're tested. They're, they're trying to trap Jesus. And the way they're trying to trap him is that um, there was a controversy in that day over the interpretation of the law of Moses when it came to divorce. And so there were two schools of thought. Um, and you could see it in their question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so that's, uh, that's one school of thought there, that you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. That's known as the school of Hillel. Okay, you can, you can divorce your wife for any reason that you want. Whereas there's another school called Shammai, who said only in the case of adultery, uh, can you divorce when if that that's the school of Shammai? Okay, so the school of Hallel is much more liberal. Uh, the the school of Shammai is it's much more uh, restrictive when it comes to uh, divorce. And so they want Jesus to choose one school or the other, so they can create this controversy in his teaching. And so they're they're basically asking him, "Are you with Hallel?" That's what they're asking him. Are you with Hillel? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And in response, Jesus, he gives us God's design for marriage in verses four to six. And he really takes them back to Genesis 2.24. And so he answered, have you not read? And that's a slight jab right there, right? <laughs> of course they've read it, but he's implying they're neglecting it, right? Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he's quoting Genesis 2.24. And that's what we saw in our very first session together. But then he draws out the truth of this passage or one of them in verse six. So they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's a very important general principle before we get to the specific one 
there's a very important general principle here that we can draw from Jesus' use of the Old Testament. Um, this is Genesis 2, right? Later, they're going to be talking about Deuteronomy 24. That's where divorce is mentioned in the law. And what Jesus is saying here is Genesis 2 has priority over Deuteronomy 24. Why is that? It's because in Genesis 2, it's at creation. It's before the fall. It's before sin. But specifically, we see God's original intention. This is the blueprint. This is the design, right? This was God's and is God's perfect ideal for marriage, which is then to shape all things related to how marriage is to be seen. Right? And so that's a very important principle. What happened at creation before the fall takes priority over the law. And I would say it's, it's even, it endures forever right there. But specifically here, so that's a general principle, but the specific principle we see here from Genesis 2.24, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh, which he interprets to mean God has joined them together. And what God has joined together, let not men, that's man in general, meaning any human person, any human institution, let not man separate. Therefore, God's intention, God's design is that when two people are married, this is not just two people coming together on their own. It's not a pastor or a judge who makes them married. Rather, it is God. God is the one who joins a married couple together and what God joins, man is not to separate. Interesting. This, uh, this word separate, that's the exact same word. Remember, we were talking about it in 1 Corinthians 7, 10. Exact same word Jesus uses here. And by he means divorce, right? And so another confirmation in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, he's talking about divorce. But he says, let man not separate. And I, I think it's possible to even interpret this as saying, what God has joined together, man cannot separate. And that's going to become uh, more clear even later in the passage. But, but the point for now is God does not want divorce. In fact, divorce is contrary to his purpose. And so in answer to the Pharisees' trap, he's not siding with either school. Right? In fact, he's giving a stronger position. There should be no divorce, no divorce. Okay, so, so that's, that's his first uh, response to them. And then the Pharisees, they come back in verses 7 to 9. And they say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so here they're referring to Deuteronomy 24. And so let's turn there. I think it should be in your handout. But Deuteronomy 24, uh, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, 
and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so this is the only Old Testament passage in the law that addresses divorce. And the verse in question in uh, Matthew 19, it's Deuteronomy 24, 1. First verse, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So that's the reason for divorce. And it's some indecency. And so this is, this is the important question. What is some indecency? Uh, that's where the debate is. The school of Shammai says it's adultery. Whereas the school of Hillel says it's anything. And in fact, if you look at their writings, even if a wife burned their husband's meal, that would be reason enough to divorce the wife. It could be anything. Some indecency could be anything. So that's why they asked that question right there, you know, for any reason. And when you think about this, your first reaction might be, Halal just sounds ridiculous, right? Divorcing for a burnt meal, that's, that sounds ridiculous. And so Shammai seems to make more sense. Adultery, divorcing for adultery, that seems to make more sense. Until you, you understand, right, that the law already talked about adultery. And what is to be done in the case of adultery? It's not divorce, it's death, right? That's the, that's the Mosaic law. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then it's repeated in Deuteronomy, right? Just two chapters before this one. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.22, easy to remember. 22.22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So he should purge the evil from Israel. And so if in Deuteronomy 24, something indecent means adultery, then Moses is saying one thing here and then another thing there. And so the law contradicts itself. Right? And so something indecent can't mean adultery because he's already told us in the case of adultery, it's not divorce, it's death. And so then most likely, the school of Hillel is actually right, at least in their interpretation of something indecent. It's anything, something indecent. But this is where we need to go back to Matthew 19. And in verse 7, the Pharisees say, they said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And the key word there is command. Why did Moses 
command divorce. But if you look carefully at Deuteronomy 24, does Moses command divorce? You look carefully there. When a man, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and departs out of his house, do you see any command there? All I see is a very important word, if. If. And that if, it controls the entire verse. And so Moses, he's not giving a command in verse 1. He's merely stating a condition. If. And in fact, the only command that he gives in the entire passage is in verse 4, where he says, Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That's the only command. And so when we come back to Matthew 19, Jesus brings this out in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Moses allowed it. He did not command it. He allowed it because of their hardness of heart. It was because of their refusal to obey God's intention and design for marriage, which he said so clearly from the beginning, right? But it was happening. It was happening because their hardness of heart. Divorce was happening. And so Deuteronomy 24, it's very specific. It's not a command to divorce. Rather, it's a command to regulate divorce. It's to control it. Right? And so that's the purpose of Deuteronomy 24. It's, it's to control divorce uh, from getting out of hand and defiling the, the entire nation. Right? And so basically, all Deuteronomy 24 is saying is that if a man divorces his wife, and um, at that time, actually, only the man could divorce, if then that woman, if she remarries, cannot be married again to her first husband. That's all it's saying. And what's the reason why? Uh, verse 4, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. Now, why has she become defiled? That's an important question. And it's actually not totally clear from Deuteronomy 24. Why has she been defiled if she divorces and then marries another? Deuteronomy 24 doesn't really explain, but Jesus does. And so back to Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so there's the answer. If you divorce and marry another, that's adultery. And that's why she is defiled. Uh, Luke 16, 18 makes this even more clear. Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband 
commits adultery. And so not only does the wife commit adultery in remarrying, but a man who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery, right? So that, that verse just really brings out the clarity there. And so, but why is that? Didn't they get divorced, right? Aren't they no longer married? Why, why is it adultery for divorced people to remarry? And Jesus, he actually already told us. Matthew 19, 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, only God has the right to separate marriage, and he doesn't do it. And so a legal divorce is not a real divorce to God. And that also explains 1 Corinthians 7, 10. Right, which said, but if she does separate or divorce, she should remain unmarried. Why should she be unmarried and then be reconciled to her husband? Because they were never really divorced to begin with. They may have been legally divorced, but not to God. And so does that mean then that God's word teaches divorce is never permissible? Um, let me put it this way. Divorce is never commanded. Okay. That's very important. That attitude is, is very important. Divorce is never commanded. God does not want us to have hard hearts. And that's really how divorce happens. Doesn't it? Right. A person hardens their heart to another. God doesn't want that. Right? So he never commands divorce. And this really goes back to Ephesians 5. What's the ultimate meaning of marriage? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriage, in God's design, it is to reflect the infinite love of Christ. That love, which its height, its depth, its breadth is beyond comprehension. The love of Christ, which, which loved us when we were his enemies, which, which kept on loving us, even when we crucified him to the cross. And you did crucify him. How? with your sin, right? You, you were the unfaithful, unloving partner to Christ. And many times you still are. Do you love Christ the way you ought to? Of course not. And yet, he loves you, right? And he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he will keep on loving you, and nothing can ever separate you from his love, right? Neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, Romans 8, 39. And so that's why divorce should never be an option for believers, right? To divorce your husband or your wife would contradict the gospel you believe, right? The gospel by which you have been saved, the gospel by which you are loved, 
into all eternity. And so if, if Christ loves you so forever, how could you not love your spouse for this momentary life? That's the heart of marriage and why divorce contradicts it. And so the Lord never commands divorce. However, we see that he did permit it. And that's very different, right? He permitted it because the reality is we live in a broken world. We live in a complex world. And while it should not be, sometimes it just happens. And so in verse 9, Jesus tells us very specifically when it may happen. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except. And so this is called the exception clause, except for sexual immorality. And so the only reason that one may, they're not commanded to, but they may divorce is sexual immorality. The word here is porneia, refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. In other words, adultery. And so if a husband or a wife commits adultery, then the offended party may divorce. Again, here they're not commanded, but they may. And I think this is the logic here. Okay, why? Why, why, why is this permissible? If you go back to the Old Testament, what was the penalty for adultery? It was death right? Deuteronomy 22, 22. It was, it was death. Okay. So, so the penalty for adultery was death. Okay. So keep that in mind. Adultery leads to death. And then remember first Corinthians seven and Romans seven. When was a wife permitted to remarry? It's when the husband dies, right? First Corinthians seven thirty nine. a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married. So therefore, if the penalty for adultery is death, and when a person is dead, the spouse is permitted to remarry, then here's the logic behind why Jesus permits divorce and remarriage upon adultery. If someone commits adultery, it is as if they have died. In the new covenant, adultery is not punished by death. But this is the logic. It is as if they have died to you. And that, that's most certainly how it feels, I'm sure, when you, find, when you discover your spouse committed adultery. And so according to Romans 7, 2, the bond of the covenant is broken upon death. And if adultery leads to death, then there's, that's the logic, why it is permissible to uh, divorce and remarry uh, upon um, adultery. And so the innocent party then is free to remarry in that case. And so uh, I think that's the logic of the exception in Matthew 19.9. And that's also expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. You should see it in your handout. Uh, in uh, 24.5, it says, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party 
to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So you see there, the, uh, um, the Westminster divines, uh, they use that same logic as well, as if the offending party were dead. Now, um, it, it's good for you to know at this point that not everybody agrees with that interpretation of the exception. Okay, and there's actually been many, many books and articles written about that. Um, and there are different understandings. For example, John Piper, whom we love and we respect, um, he sees pornea in Matthew 19.9, he sees that as referring to fornication, specifically, very specific. That is sex before marriage. And so he sees Matthew 19.9, as referring to betrothal. And what he has in mind is, you remember when Joseph found out Mary was pregnant and he sought to put her away to divorce her, right? Um, they were not, they had not consummated the marriage yet at that point. They were just betrothed to one another. That's kind of what he sees in his mind that Jesus is talking about there. Very specific. Um, and you know, uh, I, I recommend reading or listening to what Piper has to say because so much of it is, is, is just really rooted in the covenant that we have with Christ, right? And Christ's love. That's really where he's coming from. Um, but when I read Matthew 19 and Deuteronomy 24, I don't really think that fits the context uh, that it's so limited to betrothal. I think he's just talking about marriage in general. And so Piper's view, it's really a minority position. In the church. Um, the, the majority view is, is what I've presented to you. And so most interpreters, they see Matthew 19, it's talking about marriage, not betrothal. And, and the logic of divorce is it's permissible in the case of adultery because it is as if they had died. Um, now, having said all that, very important to recognize that before Matthew 19, we have Matthew 18, obviously, right? But Matthew 18, 21, 22, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. And then the conclusion, uh, Matthew 18, 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You can just summarize that with the song, right? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. His mercy is more, right? And so for the believer, although we are permitted to divorce, we should always want mercy to triumph over judgment, James 2.13. And so while divorce is permissible, you should never see that as your first option. It should always be your last. What is first is reconciliation. It's restoration. It, it's forgiveness. And even if a spouse commits adultery and they are as good as dead, right? do we not believe that the gospel is powerful to bring the dead back to life? 
That's what we believe, right? And so that should be our impulse to live out the powerful resurrection of Christ in our lives. That should be our impulse, that mercy triumphs over judgment. But having said that, there are cases when the guilty party is unrepentant. They're unremorseful, they're defiant, they're hard-hearted, and as much as you try to reconcile them to the Lord, they won't. And so in that case, it's also significant that Matthew 18 precedes Matthew 19. Because also in Matthew 18, we're given the procedure for disciplining unrepentant sin. And so eventually, if someone, a believer, refuses to repent of their sin and they refuse to listen to the church, then what happens? Matthew 18, 17. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be to you as a non-believer because they're acting like one. And so here's the logic then, right? In adultery, the person is as if they are dead, right? In unrepentant adultery, not only are they dead, this person is a non-believer. So then at that point, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and following comes into play. You're now married to a non-believer. And what do you do in that case? Right? Um, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Right? And so if the non-believer, because they're unrepentant, wants a divorce, then you can't stop them. And if the non-believer continues in adultery before divorce at the right time with the assistance of the elders, you can determine that the divorce may be permissible. And, you know, kind of in the background of all this, and you can also think of Hosea, right? He had an adulterous wife. So you want mercy to triumph over judgment. But there was a point when enough was enough. And judgment had to come in, right? And so the, the offended part, part, uh, partner, partner really needs to prayerfully consider the best way to honor Christ, uh, who has called us to peace in these situations. And so um, that's it. Uh, we, we, we've seen God intends marriage to last for a lifetime. Uh, God made marriage to be an inseparable bond. Um, and he does not want divorce. However, the unfortunate reality is that there are certain situations when divorce is permissible, specifically adultery. And in that case, with, with much prayer and counsel from the elders of the church, uh, a person may be permitted to regrettably uh, divorce. Uh, I, I really hope and pray that never happens to any one of you. Um, and, um, you know, I, I hope that, you know, all of you are so full of the love of Christ, right? That, that you 
faithfully give his love to your spouses so that this never happens. Um, but if it does, um, then, oh man, that, that would be very unfortunate. And, you know, um, I think what we've seen, just the conjunction of Matthew 19 and Matthew 18, is this is any issue, serious issue of sin, you want to involve at some point the church and the elders to really see how to glorify God through that situation. Um, and so uh, I, I hope that's, uh, that's helpful to you. Um, I'm sure there's, there's many questions. Uh, there's many other possible scenarios. And so there's, there's a lot that we could talk about. And so um, we'll, we'll hash it out in our um, reflection groups. Um, and then even after that, if you have more questions, feel free to, uh, to send me a question along the way. Um, but for now, uh, let's, let's pray together and then uh, we'll break out into our reflection groups. And if you would, uh, let's just take a, a moment here and, um, you know, if I'm sure all of you know someone who has been divorced, maybe even someone, uh, very close to you, uh, let, let's pray for them and just ask that the Lord would allow the blood of Christ to work powerfully in their life to produce peace. And then secondly, let's, uh, let's pray um, for the marriages at our church and the future marriages um, that they would be so full of the love of Christ that this would not even ever become an option. And so let's, let's take some time to, to pray for our married couples. Uh, that the love of Christ would be just overflowing in their lives. And, and for all of us, that we would just, we would love Christ and we just see how much Christ loves us and that would fill us and, and nourish us and satisfy us. Our Father in heaven, Lord, it is so amazing to consider how you love us. Though we are sinners, though we, we spite you, we ignore you, we rebel against you, you love us. You never stop. In Christ Jesus, you will never divorce us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We, we thank you. 
that you give us a love that surpasses anything that anyone could ever give to us. And Lord, we thank you for that joy. We can look forward to being in that love forever, for all eternity. And so may that transform the way we think about marriage and just everything, oh God. May we see everything through the love of Christ Jesus. Lord, as we uh, take some time now to uh, fellowship together, to speak truth and love, um, may Christ and his love be exalted in our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.